Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, well, obviously, we'll be talking about <laughs> the Olympic failure, uh, everything that it was and, I guess, wasn't. Uh, we'll talk about qualifying that's happening over in Europe. We'll talk about Bob Bradley and John Wayne Gacy and the system, quote-unquote, the system, injuries, U.S. men's national team, uh, the American soccer psyche, footloose, and much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, March 29th? And I know that is a loaded question. Uh, I'm doing well after a busy weekend. Yesterday was a beast of a day. I'm not complaining. I love my job. But uh, to have to be in there at 6 a.m. to cover the U.S. senior game, and then to roll right into that uh, under-23 doubleheader where we had a half-hour pregame leading into the first game and then an hour pregame leading into the second one. It was, it was a beast of a day, huh? It's, uh, it, was, it was fun. It was good. Um, the alternative is that we don't have jobs, so I'm pretty <laughs> happy with that. And uh, no, so we, Okay, so before we get into it, we're not burying the lead, but we do most, most of the time start off this pod talking about some, some things that aren't necessarily directly associated with soccer, and we do have lives apart from soccer. Mossy, did you do anything this week of interest? Did you see anything interesting out there you think the folks would uh, be interested in? No, but I actually had a very uh, pleasant occurrence. Uh, there is a podcast I listen to called The Watch. It's these two guys, Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. It is a pop culture television podcast. They, they discuss various television shows, and I get a lot of my uh, television recommendations from them. And this past week, they came on and said, hey, we both discovered this fantastic show, The Bureau, this French show on Amazon Prime. And, and they went on to, to just sing its praises and talk about how it's become, you know, the obsession of their lives and they can't stop watching it. And so uh, that was uh, very satisfying for me. Now, you're not taking credit for that. Right? No, but it just it usually works in reverse. They they bring up a show that I right. wasn't familiar with and I hear them praise it and then I go and watch it. And this time I was sort of ahead of the curve. Well, we've actually had some suggestions over the last couple of weeks about, you know, people are always telling us what we should do or, or how, how they think we could improve the show. And there's actually been some suggestions about maybe expanding our inner intro type of uh, talk where we give our recommendations in terms of our viewing, our television viewing, and, and adding, you know, a musical component. Or I guess in, in this case, it would be a podcast component. And sometimes we do... Uh, trumpet uh, stuff like that but maybe in the future we'll I'll, I'll drop in a, a song or two as we uh, as we go forward Th things that I am listening to things that have uh, um, you know caught my ear in the in the musical sense going forward but I, I still continue to watch some different things all right so three things that uh, that came on my uh, radar this week and maybe it's just a dark and depressing type of week uh, that is being reflected in the stuff that I'm watching so um, under Suspicion, over on Netflix, under uh, uncovering the uh, Westfallen case, which uh, for you Francophiles out there actually is, is uh, most of it is actually in French. There are subtitles. I guess there would be some, some Flemish too going on in it or, or maybe some other languages out there. But for the most part, it's French. It's about this, uh, this Frenchman that was accused of murdering his wife and it goes into the whole uh, thing. It's a documentary uh, about that. Uh, fascinating, uh, interesting, and I guess even at the end of the documentary, 
we still don't quite know and you fall on different sides as to whether he did or didn't or was or wasn't involved uh, with it despite uh, what happened in uh, in terms of the um, the courtroom so that's one uh, and then to continue on the uh, the murderous uh, psychopathic type of uh, road here. John Wayne Gacy uh, over there on the Peacock Network, a new documentary, Devil in Disguise. For those that don't know, he's a uh, notorious serial killer with all of the uh, expected and some of the unexpected uh, type of things when it comes to uh, the serial killers out there and just a... um, a, a devil, absolutely, and but interesting, uh, interesting story and interesting documentation, especially with some of the historic footage that they have, and even interviewing the uh, the, the psycho that he uh, that he is. And then to kind of balance things out, I went back and watched a a classic '80s film in the form of Footloose, uh, which was remade later on. But I don't even care about that. But it's a it it is a classic. Um, does it hold up? I mean, the soundtrack does, and certain elements do, but it's still very, very '80s in the way that it uh, that it was it was done. I didn't, you know, uh, I I didn't watch Footloose in the moment when I was seeing it. At the time that I was seeing it, I didn't associate it as much with a as a of a musical type of pro- or you know a musical production type of movie in in the same way that you know Grease has. And it's not as if they're necessarily breaking out a song. In this case, they're more. more more likely breaking out in dance, but it was much more theatrical than I remembered it. Um, and so, but, but so, well, like I said, parts of it do hold up and it is a, a feel good type of story. My kids did not like it, so it didn't translate uh, generationally. Uh, so, but it was still something that I, uh, that I enjoyed watching and it kind of balanced out the serial killer and murder, <laughs> murdering husbands uh, uh, that I had uh, that I had traveled down with the other uh, stuff that I was watching. Uh, Mossy, anything else before we uh, we get to what the the most important part is? That's it. All right, listen. As I said, I, I I did not want to bury the league, but I did want to at least give our recommendations out there. We are coming to you, as I said, on Monday, March 29th. Uh, for those that are listening on uh, on Tuesday, a couple of days ago, we, as a soccer playing nation, the American soccer community, experienced yet another failure. Now, a failure not necessarily equal with what happened in 2017 when the U.S. men's national team epically and spectacularly failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup, but a failure nonetheless in the form of the U.S. men's Olympic team or potential Olympic team, the under 23, which is actually under 24 because of the uh, delay of a year for the pandemic, failed to qualify for this summer's Olympics in Tokyo. The, um, and Masi, please correct me if I'm wrong, but there is, there is a certain collective angst and anger and sadness, not necessarily to the level, like I said, of 2017, but certainly the American soccer community uh, was brought out in much greater numbers and uh, with much more passion and intensity over this result than anything that has happened since. Before this game, uh, I said, because I was asked online about whether it was hyperbole to, you know, to talk about this game in terms of its importance and put it up there as the most important game since 2017. And absolutely, I think that it was the most important game for the men's uh, U.S. national team program since that game in 2017 down there in Cuba uh, against Trinidad and Tobago in which we lost. Um, This was for the opportunity, if the U.S. had won, to go and to uh, participate in what what I think is the, you know, apart from the World Cup, 
the most prestigious and important global men's soccer tournament that the U.S. men's national team can qualify for. And they failed. And they failed yet again, which means that the U.S. has failed to qualify for the Olympics from a men's perspective three times in a row. Three times. Last three cycles. And four out of the last five uh, we have failed. So... Uh, for those that, that didn't see it or didn't know about it, that's something that a lot of people are talking about right now. And rightfully so, because once again, we start looking inward and we start examining and the, uh, the postmortems are happening and the repercussions and the, as I said, the, the self-examination of who we are as a soccer playing nation and what did we get wrong and what does this say about the future? All of those conversations were, were being had. You know, as is the case when something like this happens and you're working it, which is what we were doing last night on Fox, we were working it, this happens. It comes back on uh, to us in the studio and myself and uh, uh, last night we were working with uh, Moadu and uh, Rob Stone. We are asked to give our our opinions and our feelings in that moment. And uh, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It is, it is emotional. I take these things seriously. Now, as I said on, on air... I am a 50-year-old man, all right? I am a father. I am supposed to be um, more mature and have more perspective and uh, to be calm and cool and composed. And listen, I know it's just soccer. I know it pales in comparison to most other things out there, and it is just a sport, and it is just a score of a game. But this is our job, and these are the things that we do take seriously. These are the things that we do talk about, and these are the things that do get to me and so many others. I was angry. I was sad. I was frustrated, um, and I was emotional, and uh I had to I have to do my job in that moment and try to be fair and balanced to the extent that I can with the recognition that I'm a human being, I'm a human being with a with a past relative to the US men's national team and I'm seeing my US team not get the opportunity to go to an Olympics and I'm thinking in my mind how this is going to play out. All right. I got plenty more to say, Mossy, but I want to get you in here as I've kind of laid out the scenario yesterday after that game. Initial thoughts on this result, and I guess more importantly, because this is what the conversation is, what does it mean or what doesn't it mean for American soccer? Yeah, I too have a lot of thoughts about the squad and some of the lineup decisions and how the matches played out, but just big picture, uh, it's obviously very disappointing, but in my view, it's a different kind of disappointment than the last two cycles. Uh, they're all, the three Olympic qualification failures are getting lumped together, but the previous two felt like an indictment on the quality of players the U.S. was producing and led to a lot of hand-wringing about the system, and so it was disappointing in, in that vein. This one is disappointing uh, for the completely opposite reason, precisely because the U.S. has such good under-23 talent right now, and you wanted to see them be able to showcase it on the world stage. I've, I've made this analogy before. The U.S. is like a guy that's been driving a so-so car for the last 20 years and now has a Ferrari. And ever since they got this Ferrari, it's snowed every day. And so they're not able to take it out for a spin and show it off. Uh, the U.S. has all this great young talent, but events have conspired between COVID and competitions being canceled and not being able to get players released uh, where they don't get to use it in any meaningful game. And so we're restricted to watching 
guys like Pulisic and Reina and Musa and, and McKinney and Adams and Dest play in these meaningless friendlies every few months. And it would have been just such a great opportunity to have those guys go to the Olympics this summer, play against the best under 23 players from countries like Brazil and Argentina and Germany and France and Spain. And it would have been a great experience for them. It would have been a, such a great springboard uh, ahead of World Cup qualifying and beyond. So it's really an incredible missed opportunity. But a lot of the conversation is, to your point, all of this talent that we have, all of this Olympic age eligible talent that we have that wasn't there in the most important moment to help us qualify. And as you mentioned, there, there are excuses, some of them fair and valid out there. Um, you know, we, we knew all ahead of time that it was going to be difficult to get all of these players to be involved. Having said that, I think that there was enough talent to find a way to uh, to qualify, and in that ultimate game, to find a way to beat uh, to beat Honduras. You know, when it comes to you know the release of players, and I said this last night on uh, on uh, on air, the responsibility um, and the criticism to the extent that there is criticism, but I think that there is, uh, and I think that it is valid, uh, falls on the shoulders of much of the leadership when it comes to U.S. soccer, okay? And, you know, the leadership when it comes to U.S. soccer is is living in a, a very positive type of moment with what the women's team is doing, with what the men's team, like you said, is is doing. But when you talk about Cindy Parlocone, when you talk about Will Wilson, when you talk about Ernie Stewart, when you talk about Brian McBride, when you talk about Greg Berhalter, and obviously the coach of this under-23 team, Jason Kreiss, they knew that this was coming. They knew that the Olympic qualifying process was going to happen. And they knew, because we always know, that it is going to be a struggle. It is their job to do everything in their power possible to give this team the best chance of success and to leave no stone unturned, to call in every favor, to be there on a consistent basis negotiating and figuring out a way to get as many players released as possible. And you know that it's, it comes to, there comes a point where clubs are going to decide and make that calculation as to it, if, it, if it is or isn't beneficial to them to release the players. And some of them will and some of them, uh, some of them won't. The fact that there were MLS teams that decided not to release players uh, for this qualifying process, that boggles my mind, frustrates me, and angers me. And to be quite honest, that's inexcusable given the longstanding relationship and working relationship that Major League Soccer and the United States Federation has. This is something that needed to be nipped in the bud. This is something that needed to be addressed and figured out early. So at the very least, you have the best MLS players uh, available and give yourself the best possible chance. I'm not saying that you just, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And by the way, if the new rule is that if you go and play in Europe, that you are, you are no longer eligible or no longer able to be called into the Olympic team, tell us ahead of time. So the other part of it is the priority. People ought to talk about, you know, what is a priority? If qualifying for a men's Olympics is no longer a priority, for whatever reason, and they might be legitimate or not, then let us know, okay? Because I don't want to care. I don't want to spend my time my my emotion, my heart, my brain, <laughs> my soul 
caring about something if you don't care about. If it's not a priority to you, then tell me and we will go on our merry way. I think that's, I think that's wrong and I think we're wasting a, a real genuine opportunity. But if that's the, the, the position of U.S. soccer, then fine. Uh, but but tell me ahead of time, and I can do some different things, and we can look at this in a very very uh, a very different way. Masi, when it comes to the release of players, let's deal with that first uh, right now. I think we both recognize and can respect that it's difficult, and that you are not going to get every player uh, every player released. But do you think that everything was done to try to get the best possible collection of players? Uh, and the most talented collection of uh, players together, and therefore give us the best chance of qualifying for this tournament down in Guadalajara that ultimately resulted in uh, either going or not going to the Olympics this summer? Well, I, I will definitely answer that question. But first off, we should get the facts out there because I, I saw a lot of ill-informed takes on Twitter last night. Um, yes, it was a weird juxtaposition to watch the best U.S. under-23 players play in a friendly against Northern Ireland, um, and then a few hours later, have the U.S. under-23 team bomb out of a tournament. But I saw a lot of tweets to the effect of, well, U.S. soccer uh, got what they deserved by essentially choosing the Northern Ireland game over the Honduras game and prioritizing the Northern Ireland game over the Honduras game as if it was up to the U.S. Federation and they could have had all those players that were on the field against Northern Ireland play against Honduras. It doesn't work that way, folks. Uh, European clubs were obligated to release players for the Northern Ireland game. Uh, they were not obligated to release players for the Honduras game because that was an under-23 match. And by the way, that issue has been complicated further by COVID. It, you notice the U.S. play these two friendlies in Europe. Uh, mm -hmm. European clubs are very reticent right now to allow their players to fly to this part of the world. Uh, the South American World Cup qualifiers that were supposed to occur during this international break were postponed for that reason. So in fairness to the U.S. Soccer Federation, I'm sure in an ideal world, it was completely up to them. A lot of the players that were on the field against North Ireland would have played against Honduras. Now, uh, that being said, uh, the point that, that Grant Wall and others are making, and, and you essentially just made, is uh, there was a European-based player on this roster, Sebastian Soto, who plays for Norwich. And by the way, there was another one in the initial list, Uli Lanez, who plays for Heronveen and then had to pull out because of an injury. So uh, it's not unheard of for there to be some European-based players on this roster, but you have to negotiate. And so that's where U.S. soccer could have gotten a little bit more creative and, and maybe found some guys that weren't playing for their clubs and that the clubs would have been willing to release. Or the example has been brought up. Honduras had this striker, Rigoberto Rivas, who plays in Italy for a Serie B side, Regina. And they refused to release him for the entirety of this tournament. But so Honduras went back to him and said, OK, just let us have him for a couple of games. And so he arrived a couple of days before their final group match against Canada, played in that game, played in the semifinals against the U.S. yesterday, did very well, by the way, he was one of the best players on the field. And now I haven't even read this, but it wouldn't surprise me if he even goes back today and doesn't even play in the final against Mexico, because who cares? They've already clinched an Olympic berth. So they only had him for a few days, but it was a few days that allowed him to play in the two most important games in the tournament. So that's where Grant Wall and others are saying that U.S. soccer could have been a bit more creative here other than, than just sort of accepting their lot and that they weren't going to get more European players than they did. Um, so, yeah, I think there is some room for criticism there. Uh, and as to the uh, MLS point, I mean, again, just to get the facts out there, the issue there was Atlanta United have a CONCACAF Champions League match coming up against Alajuelense in Costa Rica. And the rules are such that had they allowed their players to play in this tournament in Guadalajara, when they returned to the U.S., they would have had to quarantine for a 
certain amount of days and and wouldn't have been able to play in that first leg in Costa Rica against Alajuelense. I know that's not uh, that that's that excuse doesn't compel you, but just to at least get the facts out there, that was sure. sort of the reasoning for that. Yeah, and that's and that that is fair. And as I said, not just MLS clubs, but all clubs are going to go and they're going to weigh the risk reward. Uh, the reward is potentially having your players be involved in Olympics and therefore their value increases. It's a platform. Uh, there's more notoriety and therefore that asset that you have appreciates. You know, the risk is, like you said, not being able to play in crucial games or obviously the injury risk uh, out there. All right, let's dive into a little bit about the actual performance. This was a team, and if you disagree with me if you'd like, Mossy, but this was a team that did, that did not... Um, did not awe us from the start. This is a team that, even after the first game, which they got out uh, with a win on the back of some very, very good goalkeeping in the moment, we did not say, wow, this is a team that uh, is headed for the Olympics. Uh, we knew that this was going to be a struggle given uh, given the way that they played through, uh, through the tournament. They did not look great again uh, in this final game against against Honduras. The, you know, Jason Christ as the head coach, um, there was a lot of, of talk and I, I do believe actual participation and connection between the national team. And Jason Christ talked about the DNA of the team and how they wanted to play and um, an adherence to playing out of the back and a commitment to possession, which is a lot of the stuff that, that Greg Berhalter is trying to implement with the full team. And that's all fine and well. And I know that's a long and bigger type of conversation. We'll get into it a little bit here. But I think what it really comes down to is that this collection of players that they had, from a pure soccer perspective, was trying to play in a way um, and while admirable and honorable that they are trying to live up to what the full team is doing and that vertical integration that we talk about, this, this team was, once again, that risk-reward, right? If you play out of the back and you are you know, there's strict adherence to playing out of the back because you believe that that is the way to get the best out of these players, you have to be rewarded when you break that pressure by having the players that can make something of it. And I don't think that there was enough creativity. I don't think that there was enough attackers and quality and um, qualified type of attacking prowess out there to get that reward of playing the way that they did. And that, to me, um, that's a problem because ultimately this is about results. I say this all the time. If the U.S. men's national team were to win a World Cup, nobody would give a crap how it was done, Okay. Uh, and ultimately, it is about getting those results. You cannot have that advantage in that platform of an Olympics unless you qualify. And that they went down and tried to qualify playing in this type of style, like I said, I get it. It's admirable that uh, you're doing what the full national team is doing. But if you can't couple it with the results and you don't have that other side of the equation, which is why playing out at the back gives you that advantage on the other side, then it's going to be real problematic. In general, Mossy, when you are looking at this team, what do you think that some of the problems were? And, those, and more importantly, some of those problems that you think led to this failure? I agree with everything you just said. This team was very disappointing. And to go back to the squad selection, it's why people like Matt Doyle are saying, even if you write off all the European guys and even the Atlanta guys and just take it from the pool of players that were available to Jason Christ, he made some questionable selections, not bringing somebody like Jeremy Bobasi to this tournament. So I think there's even stuff there to chew on. But yeah, um, 
there wasn't a single convincing performance start to finish in this tournament. If you separate out the Dominican Republic game and take the three quote unquote real games they played, they were really outplayed in each. They were fortunate to beat Costa Rica and then lost to Mexico and Honduras. And even against the Dominican Republic, it was nil nil in the 60th minute. They had to bring on some subs to kind of break that game open. And yeah, two things that I saw. Um, everybody has fallen in love with this whole false nine Firmino-esque type of thing. I, I now hear people constantly compare it to Roberto Firmino and, and managers love to throw out that comparison because I don't know, I think it makes them sound like sort of chic and authentic and that they could have a player like that. Um, but it, it's important to understand the reason that worked with Liverpool for those years is because uh, you had two wide attacking players in Salah and Mane that were constantly making aggressive diagonal runs into the box and that were prolific goal scorers. And if you don't have those types of players out on the wings, and this is something even Brazil has struggled with, with the actual Roberto Firmino. But if you don't have those type of players and you play kind of a false nine-ish type of center forward like Ferreira, you end up with a lack of penalty box presence, which is what I saw from this U.S. team. You know, uh, it, it just felt very toothless in attack. And particularly, you look at the starting lineup yesterday, you have Ferreira as a center forward, kind of false nining it up and floating around and doing false nine type things. And then you have Mihailovic, who's essentially a midfielder playing in one of those attacking positions. And the other one was Jonathan Lewis. And there just wasn't a lot there to trouble that Honduras back line. There was no physical presence in the box. There wasn't a lot of pace. And so the, the whole attack just felt very toothless throughout this tournament. And then the other thing was, I agree with you, there was a lack of creativity in the midfield. And there were far too many minutes spent with Perea as the six and Jackson Yule as the eight. I don't know why you wouldn't want Jackson Yule as the pivot man in that midfield sort of running the show. I think the few times the U.S. looked good in this tournament, it was when they had that setup, but he seemed to go away from it. So those, to me, were the two head-scratching things. There's also this sentiment out there, Mossy, that this team was, for lack of a better word, soft. And this is something that gets attributed to American players and American teams uh, at different times. And And look, I know it's a... It, it's it's an all-encompassing catch-all type of 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 word, and you know it's kind of like uh, you know the Supreme Court uh, ruling on obscenity. You know, I, I I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, right? And there seems to be this feeling that the American teams and American players, and it manifested in this version of uh, of a, the U.S. men's team, that they are lacking a ruthlessness either a ruthlessness that they see from others around the world that we don't have, and then therefore it's attributed to the fact that their upbringing and the, you know, it's, it, it, or a ruthlessness that they have seen and a trait they have seen in the past for the U.S. that we seem to have gone away from and lost. And you can point out, you know, different players from the past. And, you know, the, the uh, this, is, this, is, this is not a place for angels, okay? And being you know, a-holes at a certain point can ultimately get you results. And I just think that there, there is a general consensus that this team did not have enough grit, did not have enough, and I know I hate to use the word spirit because that just it doesn't really say, say anything. But you never got the feeling that this was a team that you would be comfortable getting in a bar fight with, okay? They never got the feeling that this was a team that was going to be able to run through the wall uh, for you and would run through the wall for you. Or 
would just get down and do whatever it took ultimately to get that win, even if it was down and dirty to figure out a way uh, to get that win. Even when they weren't playing pretty soccer, it still wasn't, you know, we can still have that that feeling of respect for a down and dirty performance. And there wasn't uh, and, and there wasn't that. I mean, look, you know, years ago when I, I did that rant about the national team, uh, you know, and I and I called them out for lacking some of that that ruthlessness that I think is so essential, not just for sports, but but in life. It doesn't mean that that you're not that you have no honor. It doesn't mean that you're not that you don't believe in in playing fair. But it does mean that at a certain point, you have to get down and dirty. And it's not all about being pretty. And it's not all about, you know, the principles. And, and look, I do not want to grumpy old man this. And there's a real risk for myself and others that are, that are of an older age when we start talking about this to, to, you know, to fit into that grumpy old man type of persona. And I, I'm all for evolving. I'm all for getting better. I'm all for possession with purpose. I am all for a recognition that playing out of the back, like I said, can lead to some really good things and you lure people in. But you also have to have the players and the mentality that goes along with the philosophy that you are employing. And too often than not, I just looked at these players. And look, I know they're young. But once again, these are not college players. These are not new players that have no experience and don't know what they are doing. These are all professionals because they have grown up in a world that has given them the opportunity and the advantage of actually being professionals and provided them with a livelihood and with a trade that many of us growing up didn't have and that previous uh, Olympic teams didn't have at their disposal. So I think I think it is a cop-out and I think at times it's letting them off the hook to say, oh, well, they're young. Oh, they're inexperienced. Or, you know, they're in, they're in preseason or whatever, whatever excuse is out there. A lot of them are, are thrown out there. Jason Christ knew this. The United States Soccer Federation knew this. The players knew this. And as I said before, if, if we were just going to throw out excuses ultimately about why we can't do this, then we never should have gone down there in the first place. Uh, I agree with you. I know it's an intangible thing, but there did seem to be a softness to this team, which is why I think they would have been much better off facing Canada yesterday because I knew Honduras was going to be more of a CONCACAF mm -hmm. game, and this team felt ill-equipped for that type of match. The other thing, which is a point I made in passing ahead of this tournament, and I wish I had leaned on it more because it actually – turned out to be very significant is this notion that these MLS players were in preseason form. They hadn't played a competitive match in months and, and you did feel like that affected them. It affected Jason Kreiss's lineup decisions and how much he rotated. He was very concerned about their fitness. He told us that in every meeting we had with him and you contrast that again with Mexico, which again uh, didn't get any of their uh, European, European players released. They had guys like Edson Alvarez and Diego Linez who are among their best under 23 players, but who play in Europe. And so they're with the senior team right now playing friendlies in Europe. They had a squad comprised entirely of Liga MX players, but at least it's guys that are in the natural flow of their season. We're in the middle of a clausura right now. All those Chivas and America guys stepped on the field for this tournament just days after playing a super classico. So uh, that to me ended up being a big factor as well. Speaking of Jason Kreiss, uh, and uh, you know we can 
we, we can wrap it up here a little bit. And I'm going to talk much more about the system later on in the uh, in the pod because this, as I said, has led to a much bigger discussion about the system and where we are. And I'm going to talk about that uh, later on in the pod. But you know, Jason Christ uh, here. This is not obviously good for him as any coach that fails um, and doesn't you know achieve that uh, achieve that goal. It's not going to be a great reflection on him. What did you think of his uh, of his of his comments after the game, uh, Jason? It's always it's it's always a an interesting and, and delicate balance for a coach that loses um, because you know as a soccer coach yes you have responsibility but I think more, our game more so than any other game it's it's up to the players to implement what you what you want and that's your job is to make sure that they are prepared to do it but you know listening to some of his, uh, some of his comments you know obviously he was devastated and that the, the team was devastated and you know he was trying to put his finger on you know what the reason was. And, you know, at the end of the day, we just we just don't I just don't think that we have enough. Uh, and his comments about winning and losing and all that. What do you think about that? Honestly, I don't get that worked up over it. I know people do on Twitter, but I'm more interested in how the games played out and decisions he made. And, and I think there's a lot of room for recrimination there. But as you said, in the heat of the moment, after a disappointing loss like that, he's trying to find the right words to convey his feelings, and he's trying to be philosophical about it. And sure, he said a couple of weird things there. It's one thing to say, hey, losing is part of life, but to say you lose more often than you win, well, that's not necessarily <laughs> true for every coach. Um, so I, I don't know. Yeah, he did say some head-scratching things there. A couple of things he said people felt was him sort of throwing the players under the bus. So as a coach, you never want to do that. You always want to include yourself in the failure too, to show that you're a part of it. But, I, but I actually don't get that worked up over it, to be honest. One of the bigs, the big problems of this failure is that it provides fodder and ammunition uh, for people that want to, uh, that want to crap on American soccer, whether it's, American soccer as a whole, whether it's individual players, whether it's teams, whether it's Major League Soccer, and at a time when I don't think that, you know, I don't think that that is necessarily the truth, it gives them yet another thing, the, the haters out there. And there are plenty of them out there. This gives them another thing, uh, another thing to point to. And that, that to me, that that is part of what makes me hurt because I know we are going to have to answer questions. Uh, those of us that do believe there are good things and do believe that we are in a moment that that is worthy of excitement and that confidence and that optimism uh, that we have. There are going to be a lot of people, like I said, that just say, well, here's another example of why you're not good at soccer or why Major League Soccer isn't good or why our our schedule or the way that we train players or, you know, the system. And I'll talk about that uh, later on, like I said, uh, like I said in it. Um, so where do, how do we wrap this up, Mossy? Where do we go for, we go from here? We just chalk it up to, to one of those days. I do think that it is, that it is an important and minor, and minor uh, reminder, excuse me, an important reminder. And maybe in a strange way for Greg Berhalter and for this men's national team that we have such high hopes for, this will, it's not a good thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it might be a needed reminder because a lot of these players weren't around and, and didn't go through the 2017 process, but a needed reminder that, you know, CONCACAF is not easy and World Cup qualifying is coming this uh, this fall. And maybe this is an opportunity for Greg Berhalter to re-examine the way he is going about his business 
uh, and how he is coaching this team, and for all of those players to once again confirm and affirm that, you know what, this is not going to happen on my watch. We saw what happened in 2017, and now we've just been reminded again about how difficult it is if you don't bring it, if you are not, if you don't have that ruthlessness uh, combined with the talent uh, that we have. Uh, and I will end it with this. Um, you know, there is an internal type of competition that is going on in the United States Soccer Federation for a battle for hearts and minds. I know it's all kumbaya and it's all soccer, but the superstars that the U.S. women's national team have been, are, and are going to continue to be for the, for the foreseeable future, they are in direct competition in a sense with what the men's team is and what the men's team isn't. And once again, this summer, now from a women's perspective, they are going to be the only stars, and rightfully so because of who they are, but there is not going to be any competition, and we are going to cheer and praise, and rightfully so, our incredible women uh, this summer in Tokyo, and they are not going to have to worry about sharing the stage with, uh, with the men's team. I don't necessarily think that they are, they are rejoicing over, over that, but in this competitive type of world that we are living in, uh, where they are constantly being compared and contrasted with the men's team, and that's nece- not necessarily fair, but life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair, they continue to you know, be that shining light that people point to. They continue to live up to expectations. And by the way, some very, very high expectations. And they continue to not let us down as opposed to the men's side, which once again has this failure and this blight and this uh, this moment that is not good for that program. Mossy, anything before we head on? Uh, no, that's it. Okay, but there there was, as you mentioned, a U.S. national team game, and uh, worth talking about because of all of this, you know, talent that we have at our disposal. It was finally on display again against a better opponent than a few days ago when we saw them play against Jamaica. So now facing Northern Ireland, and you know, Greg Berhalter and company. I thought I thought that this was a solid performance, not against a great team, but a, a good team playing on in, in on uh, playing away in foreign shores in uh, in Europe. So we will take the two one victory. Uh, some really interesting and I think good performances. I thought that Christian Pulisic was much better in this game. I thought he was much more direct. I thought he was much more involved and engaged in the proceedings. And not just you know the penalty that he scored, which wasn't a very good penalty, but still great for his confidence. But I thought. He was forcing it much more in Jamaica, and I thought it just kind of came much more naturally for him. But this is Christian Pulisic, and we should expect every single game that he plays for he to be one of the best players uh, on the field. Musa continues to shine. Uh, Gio Reyna, I thought, was good. I got, I got thoughts about Gio Reyna, but you know, those are a couple people that stood out for me, uh, and especially since those are 18-year-old players that are showing that absolutely they should be in the mix when it comes to whatever that final starting 11 is that is going to be picked by uh, Greg Berhalter. How would you see the, uh, the game against Northern Ireland, Mossy? A uh, good performance overall. Um, Greg Berhalter unveiled this 3-4-3 formation, which I thought suited some players like Pulisic, not so much others like Anthony Robinson. Uh, but, you know, when we had uh, Stu Holden on last week, uh, two, two 
topics I brought up was the fullbacks and which side Sergio Des would play and also the center forward position. And I want to go there. Uh, first of all, on the fullbacks, we saw against Jamaica, Reggie Cannon start on the right, Sergio Des start on the left. Yet Sergio Des had a great game, scored a beautiful goal. And then this time around in a slightly different role as more of a, of a wing back rather than a fullback, Sergio Des played on the right, Anthony Robinson played on the left. And in our conversations with Greg Berhalter ahead of this Northern Ireland match, I got the impression that right now he's leaning more towards having Des on the left, uh, both because he kind of likes his options at right back better with Cannon or Brian Reynolds, as opposed to, say, Sam Vines or Anthony Robinson on the left. And also, he's really intrigued by having Des and Pulisic on the same side and and, and the chemistry that those two guys could develop. So did, did you get that sense as well that right now he's kind of leaning that way? I did, you know, and I think I, I said last week that I kind of want Des to be world-class, and, you know, he is a world-class right back. Well, he showed that he can certainly do it at the left-back position, at scoring a world-class goal in that, uh, in that first game. Um, you know, the, the change of formation, I think Greg Berhalter was good when we talked to him about saying, look, this is just something to have in our arsenal going forward. It doesn't mean that he's fundamentally changing it, but it's a nice way to... You know, throw a change up uh, that can throw an opponent uh, off. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is the way going forward, but it, 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 it but it also also it it doesn't solve unless you are going to play Dest over there on the left hand side. In which case, you know, you have you know have Cannon involved and 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 he's going to occupy that left hand side. So Gino Dest is wonderful going forward. I'm really going to be interested when he is pressed into actually defending for the majority of the game what he looks like and we've seen him defend he can he can defend very well but it's it's his attack right now and the danger that he put that he poses going forward that everyone's gaga over and, and rightfully so it's it's fun to watch but ultimately this is about playing against teams that are better than us this is about being able to compete against the elites of the world in which case he is going to be put under a microscope from a defensive perspective and that's where I think he's really going to, well, he's going to be challenged, but I think ultimately that's where he's going to come good is his defense first. Uh, as a defender, that's obviously the first order uh, order of business going forward. Um, okay, so let me let me switch to Gio Reyna. Gio Reyna is a really interesting player uh, for a number of different, different reasons. One, he's incredibly talented and has shown that, but never has someone's body language other than maybe Christian Pulisic from a national team perspective been poured over and analyzed and here's the thing Gio Reyna from a structural perspective is never going to um, give you the feeling that he cares <laughs> and I know that's that's that sounds harsh but it's not just the way that he that he runs his father actually Claudio Reyna was the same way in that Claudio was much faster with the ball with an out, and without the ball. And even when he was quote-unquote quote unquote, fast, it didn't look like he was exerting much effort or power. And so the problem is, is that when you see someone doing that, you, you tend to think that they, they don't care or they're not trying. Um, and so the body language of Gio Reyna often is just kind of, you know, he he... And he's shrugging a lot or he's you know angry and yelling about different things and it doesn't look like he ever gets to top speed but I would caution all of us including myself not to read too much into that body language because it's ultimately what he is able to do and I just think he's a chip off the old block um, 
and and and, and you know the son of two soccer players in that he is much more efficient about his movements and the choices that he makes than a lot of us out there and I think but I think that's nuanced and I think that's going to take a while and at times he's going to rub people the wrong way simply from a the way his stature is and the way that his body is on the field uh no I agree with all that and then at the center forward position you've been on the page that none of these young guys have sufficiently convinced you so if the U.S. had a do or die game tomorrow you would still opt for Josie Altador. Um, one person who is sufficiently convinced by Daryl DK is your buddy, Rob Stone. I have not seen a man crush like this in a very long time. So, uh, Rob Stone put it out there on Twitter. Daryl DK is the future and present for the U S at the center forward position. He's ready to ha- hand the keys over to him. Are you there yet? Were you as impressed by DK or, or not quite yet? Uh, no, I'm not there yet. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 I will be pleased and happy to be convinced. Um, you know, I think that's a very small sample size, uh, but absolutely he he looks the part in that I think that he is a very smart player, obviously an incredibly f- uh, physical player and uses his, uh, his physical attributes uh, to great effect. And in doing so, I think more so than anybody that we have seen yet will draw attention. More so than anybody but Josie Altador, right? So, and that's what we're really trying to replace is a Josie Altador, someone that is going to draw multiple players and therefore open up that space for all these other all this other talent that we have uh, to attack and to you know, you know Christian Polisics and, and the Geos and the different players that we have out there. But a player that is going to occupy multiple defenders and as a center back, you have to be worried about where he is. And it's not just hold-up play. He can certainly do that, but he also, even when we saw in the short time he was on the field, his ability to find those channels, um, you know, his finishing is still raw, but he certainly can finish, but I I am I am moving in that direction, but I'm certainly, the, the man crush that uh, that Rob Stone has right now, it, it has not infected me quite yet, but I, I, I am willing to be convinced going forward, and part of it is that there's just nobody else out there yet that has grabbed hold of that position. And so we continue, you know, we, we continue this testing right now. Um, you know, we even saw, who do we see? Uh, Jordan Siebachu. Um, but he goes with Peacock on the back of his jersey. And that's, can I just digress for a second here, Mossy? Okay. So out of... Um, respect for his mother's maiden name. He goes with Peafock on the back of his jersey. If you decide that you want to put a certain name on the back of your jersey, remember, names came in a while ago, a long time ago, in order to help us identify the players, in order to you know give the players identity and personality, right? If you're going to use that name on the back of your jersey, we should call you that. And yet, that's not what we did. And this is, you know, this is a, a pet peeve of mine. But ultimately, choose what you want to be called by people and by the people on television to put on the back of your jersey. But it doesn't really matter because, okay, he wasn't great. And I don't think right now in the conversation of who is going to be that person up top right now that PFOC is yet there. And it's, and it's still early days. Um, he's scoring goals over there on loan with young boys over there in Switzerland. But, you know, once again, it's just churn them and burn them up there and see who, see who fits. 
But you got to figure it out soon because that World Cup qualifying uh, and Nations League and that kind of stuff and obviously Gold Cup is coming this summer. So in closing, you want more PFOC. I'm just saying that I can't have enough PFOC, okay? And I just thought uh, it's fun to say, but I also think that uh, it, that, sh- that should be what we call him. It's on the back of your jersey. I don't want to be running around. It's confusing. It's confusing, especially for a new player. We're calling him one name, and on the back of his jersey, it's something that you never even hear. Anyway, um, all in all, I think these two games, solid performance from the U.S., a solid B, let's say, for Greg Berhalter and company and what they did. Um, they, you know, they got the goals, no shutouts, but you know, so there there are things to work on. Jamaica wasn't great, but they got the job done there, and they scored multiple goals. And then, you know, they got the uh, win against a, a much better and much more competitive side in, uh, in, in Northern Ireland. And, you know, I know a lot of people are saying, why are we playing this team? Why play? You're taking whatever is available. I mean, this is the age of COVID. And we already talked about some of the challenges out there. So you are playing whatever games that you can get. Sure. We would love to be able to play against France or love to be able to play against the best uh, teams out there. But at this point, given all the restrictions and given all the, the challenges of travel and stuff like that, you take what's available to you. And to bring this whole segment back full circle, this is why the Olympic qualification failure is so disappointing because at a time when these regions are so walled off from each other now and it's very hard to arrange a, even a friendly with any top European or South American nation uh, the U.S. doesn't get a lot of cracks at being able to play competitive matches against uh, other top soccer nations. And the, the Olympics, yes, it's another 23 competition, but it would have been something. I mean, and, and now you're left with nothing. If the U.S. hopefully qualifies for the next World Cup, and if they do, they will probably take the field in November of 2022 in Qatar. Uh, and that'll be the first time they'll play a competitive match against a non-CONCACAF nation in God knows how many years. So it, it, that's a problem. It would have really been interesting to see had the U.S. qualified for the uh, Olympics, the men's team, if how many of those players would have raised their hands and said, "Yeah, this is something that I want to be, uh, you know, that I that I want to be involved with." I mean, I'll leave you with this, Masi. Had that happened and the U.S. men's team qualified for the Olympics, think of the team that could could have been put on the field given all of the eligible age. Uh, players that are there, and then obviously the three over 24 players that you are allowed to bring to an Olympics. We could have had basically the starting, the best, quote-unquote, best starting 11 that people have out there representing us in the Olympics. Had that happened, I think maybe for the first time in history, the U.S. team in an international tournament in front of the world would Arguably, but still people could argue, could have been considered a favorite to medal. Now, one one caveat I should throw at the end of this whole discussion is there's a whole question about getting players released to the Olympics themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's no guarantee the U.S. would have been able to field the strongest possible under-23 team at the Olympics. And actually, Greg Berhalter went out of his way to say that probably wasn't going to happen. There was going to be a lot of issues getting players released for the Olympics. So we should add that to this discussion sure sure but you know you never know when players start saying hey this is interesting and agents get involved <laughs> and people start thinking about things in a, in a different way so all right listen that's enough about uh the olympic team and the national team uh a, a tale of <laughs> well 
in one day we experienced both the good and the bad, uh, and there is plenty of that. I do think that there's much more good going forward and that the failure shouldn't, uh, while it should leave a bad taste in our mouth, it shouldn't, it shouldn't taint everything that is out there. And as I said, I will talk about that uh, later on in the pod. All right, Mossy, anything else before we move on? That's it. All right, there was a lot of stuff that happened over in Europe with uh, with qualifiers and some really interesting stories over there. We're going to take a real quick, uh, quick rip, uh, whip around Europe when we get back from this really, really quick break. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back. Listen, we, we spent a lot of time, and I think uh, it was correct for us to do so, but we spent a lot of time in that first segment talking about uh, that failure. A lot of stuff happened over in Europe. We're going to make this uh, quick, Mossy, as we whip around Europe for, for some different things that uh, caught, our, uh, caught our eyes and ears. Yeah, uh, 2022 World Cup qualifying got underway in Europe, and the big story from these past few days was the incident in the Serbia-Portugal match. Portugal, uh, by the way, I hailed as my favorite to win the 2022 World Cup. They've made a very sluggish start to qualifying, only uh, 1-0 win over Azerbaijan, and then 2-2 draw against Serbia. In that Serbia match, they jumped out to a 2-0 lead, two goals by Diogo Jota, then Serbia equalized, and then Cristiano Ronaldo scored a stoppage time winner, which wasn't given, even though replays showed the ball clearly crossed the line. Um, he was did it though? Did it though? Hold on. Did oh, it? you didn't think it was that clear? I, I just, I always, the, you know, the, um, the geometry is important here, right? Uh, of the sphere. And just because it looks like the ball is across the line where the ball touches the ground doesn't necessarily mean that the entire ball, which we know uh, stops or starts, depending on how you look at it, at the edge of that actual ball and it goes down. So that's fair. Just because make sure. There are a lot of plays that, to the naked eye, it seems like the ball definitely crossed the line, but then goal line technology says no. But there was no goal line technology. And that's right. the story here no VAR, no goal line technology in these UEFA uh, World Cup qualifiers. The reason being is that um, some stadiums logistically weren't suited to have them. And so UEFA made the decision that you couldn't have some games have VAR and goal line technology and others not. So if we can't have them for all of them, we're, gonna have them, we're not going to have them for any of them. And people were questioning that decision after the fact. It's so funny with VAR and goal line technology. It's the ultimate can't live with it, can't live without it mm-hmm. thing. Because, you know, when we have it, all people do is complain about it. But then a situation like this arises and now everybody's pining for it. So uh, I, I guess that is the larger lesson to be taken out of this, right? It is. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we, you know, <laughs> we talk about VAR and it is such a uh, an evergreen type of uh, type of talk, uh, talk and whether it's individual players whether it's fans whether it, whether it's leagues it is this constant pull and push you know as i've said all along i think it makes the game better and ultimately i want it now to your point, Mossy, not every, I, I do think that this was the right call. If you can't have it everywhere, then it's not fair to have it certain places. And you know that had VAR been in place one place and had changed the result and in another place didn't have it, people would be screaming bloody murder about that. Oh, how is that possible? So that I think was the fairest thing to do with the recognition that we, and this is why I say the trains left the station. We, we can't go back because of this type of situation that we have right now. But, and is it just money? I mean, if ultimately is it UEFA doesn't have the money to retrofit or fit some of these places to be able to do uh, some of these things that, 
that's going to fall on deaf ears too. If it, if it's a, if it's a situation of money. Uh, a few other games that caught my attention, uh, Zlatan, 39 years of age, off to a good start with Sweden, three assists in the first two games. He sets up a winner against Georgia and then two assists and a 3-0 win over Kosovo, including one acrobatic one, which was a thing of beauty. And then he has a cheeky Zlatan-esque line afterwards. He says, I've already scored enough goals. I need to beef up my assist numbers. So, But nice to see him back in the mix for Sweden, huh? I mean, just the fact that he's there is great. And playing provider, which is, is not a Zlatan-esque type of thing to do, that's great. I love so it. So Sweden, two wins out of two. They're now in first place in that group, uh, two points above Spain, who tied Greece and then almost tied Georgia, needed a stoppage time winner from Danny Omo uh, to win that game. And, and let me make a larger comment here about uh, European qualifying. I know there are a lot of minnows, so it's it's more tedious than, say, ball qualifying, where there's so many great games and it's and it's uh, it's but it, I think the difference here is uh, South America, it's such a slog that it actually gives you uh, a, a larger margin for error because teams mm-hmm. drop so many points that, for example, Argentina lost six of their 18 matches in qualifying for the 2010 World Cup and still made it. Brazil lost six of their 18 matches in qualifying for the 2002 World Cup and still made it. Well, in Europe, you get a lot of these groups where there's two good teams and then a bunch of minnows. And so you don't have a lot of margin for error because if you slip up in a game, you kind of know that that other good team in the group is going to clean up against all the minnows and you could find yourself in second place and that sends you to a playoff uh, to get into the World Cup. So Spain is already a little bit concerned that they've fallen two points behind Sweden here. It's early, but you know they're already kind of scoreboard watching since you kind of figured those two teams are the class of the group. So that's something to keep an eye on. But uh, elsewhere, uh, Turkey off to a good start. Two wins out of two. They beat the Netherlands 4-2, which led to a lot of mockery of Frank de Boer, and rightly so. I mean, how this man keeps like falling into good jobs. Uh, and the Netherlands, which missed the last World Cup, had a little sum going with Ronald Koeman. We're playing better on the right track. And then ever since he left to take charge of Barcelona, they appointed Frank de Boer. Their momentum is halted. They've really struggled. And then Turkey go on in their next game and beat Norway 3-0. We talked last week about Erlen Holland and how much we love to see him be able to play in these major international tournaments, but we're not sure with Norway if he's going to have the supporting cast around them to be, to be able to qualify. And so this was a bad sign. I know they beat Gibraltar in their first game, but only 3-0 and Holland didn't score, which was stunning. Everybody thought he was going to clean up against Gibraltar. And then they go and in their first quote-unquote real game, they lose 3-0 to Turkey. So kind of a shaky but start. But it's, it's also this 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 interesting phenomenon that happens with with certain players, you know, um, you know that we've seen in the past, or, or even now, even Robert Lewandowski, that we we picture them always in their glory relative to their club situation and what they do, and then when they get to the national team, it's such different circumstances, and they, you know, they almost look like completely different uh, different players, but. We want them to do well because we want them to see want to see them at the uh, at the ultimate level. Uh, to to your point about the Netherlands right now not getting it together, that's that's not good at all. That's not good for the team, and obviously not good for Frank de Boer. Although the Atlanta Atlanta United folks are just sitting back uh, having a little chuckle and saying, "Hey, you know, we feel your pain." And remember, no Virgil van Dijk. We've talked so much about how that affects Liverpool. That mm-hmm. also affects the Netherlands very much as well. Uh, Italy off to a good start. Uh, two wins out of two. They beat Northern Ireland a f- uh, three days before they faced the U.S. And then they beat Bulgaria. I-, I love the way Italy are playing under Roberto Mancini. And then last one I want to mention is... England face Poland uh, Wednesday at Wembley. And anytime those two meet in qualifying, it evokes memories of this famous uh, qualifier they played in 1973, where they drew 1-1 and that knocked England out of the 1974 World Cup. You can go read about that. It's a famous, famous game, this Polish goalkeeper playing a starring role. 
Um, but bad news here is Robert Lewandowski picked up an injury. He is out for this game, and he actually could miss Bayern's next couple of games, which we're going to segue to talking club stuff in a minute, and, and that could be potentially very damaging for them. But, yeah, this is a bummer. I mean, you, this yeah. was a game I was looking forward to. England-Poland with Robert Lewandowski on the field would have been terrific, and he's going to miss out. Oh, that's 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 bad because he's one of the world's great players, and it's fun to see. Uh, did you see the thing with uh, Modric? Yeah, that, that was so... Uh, Croatia, they lose 1-0 to Slovenia, but then came back and beat Cyprus 1-0. And in that match, Modric uh, picked up his 135th cap, moving past Dario Serna. So he is now Croatia's all-time caps leader. And they honored him in a really nice way. And you could tell he was very emotional by it. So it was it was a neat, neat bit of video there. You know, I mean, we were talking earlier about ruthlessness and, you know, that, that, that grit. And look, this is one of the great players of all time. Uh, and obviously, when it comes to Croatia, a, a legend and rightfully celebrated for what he has done and, and how he has led this team. But there is an underlying type of ruthlessness in him. Um, and once again, th- th- that's not that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a, a horrible person or a mean person at all. I'm talking about on the field. And he, he can be incredibly cutthroat and... And I love that about him. And I love that he has had such longevity and that, you know, there's a recognition about how important he has been as a, you know, a servant and as an ambassador for, uh, for this team. And, and I think he gets, I get, he gets plenty of credit, but maybe at times he doesn't get enough appreciation for how, what he has ultimately done, where he's come from and where he, where he is. Croatia, though, do feel like a bit of a spent force to me. Obviously, an yeah. incredible run to get to the World Cup final, uh, but they haven't been that great in this cycle. And so I'm, I'm, I don't have a great feeling about them moving forward, despite having such a great player like Modric. Um, but uh, I, I'm, can we put a ribbon on qualifying or do you have anything else? Yeah. That's good. Um, so, That's good. you know, club football returns this upcoming week, and I did want to segue to that and just highlight some really massive games. I mentioned Lewandowski picking up an injury that could mean missing Bayern's next couple of games. Those next couple of games are away to Leipzig this weekend and then home to PSG in the first leg of that Champions League Oof. quarterfinals. So they're really hoping that he, he comes back for these games. But yeah, the Leipzig one is big uh, this weekend. Bayern right now have a four-point lead over Leipzig atop the Bundesliga. So uh, if Leipzig want to make this a race, they really need to win this game so massive uh top of the table clash in germany um also a top of the table clash in france psg host Lille. uh timothy weighs Lille. They've, they've topped the table much of the season but psg have finally caught up their level on points psg ahead on goal difference they meet at the parc de france uh, in Spain, this is the weekend where it could really get sticky for Atletico Madrid. They're away to Sevilla, while Real Madrid and Barcelona have, on paper, easy games at home against Abar and Valladolid. So if Atletico were to lose or draw and Bayern and Real Madrid win their games, then, I mean, right now they're four points up on Barcelona, six points up on Real Madrid. So if that lead shrinks anymore, and they're going to be very nervous. And then just a couple of games I wanted to highlight in England, Leicester hosts Manchester City, while Arsenal face uh, Liverpool, a game that many of our friends will have an eye on. I mean, pretty much everybody that works at Fox is either an Arsenal or a Liverpool fan. So uh, looking forward to that one. All right. So all sorts of stuff in store for us as we uh, make our way out of what has been a pretty incredible international break with a lot of stuff going on. All right. Anything else before we move on, Mossy? Uh, I know Jeff Hernandez did want us to clear up this Shabby Alonso story because he was all excited about this on last week's 
uh, podcast, put it in the rundown, really pushed for us to talk about it. The fact that Shabi Alonso was going to be appointed as Borussia Mönchengladbach's next manager. Well, apparently those reports were off the mark because he has signed an extension with Real Sociedad to continue being their uh, B-team coach. And so uh, there'll be some discipline handed out to Jeff Hernandez. The number one rule for a podcast <laughs> producer is to put accurate hey, we stories were all in the duped. rundown. We, we uh, were all duped yes. by the story. Um, so, uh, so, you know, uh, well, well, congratulations, Shabby. Um, well, so <laughs> your, I guess that means contract. Gladbach still don't have the next manager lined up. So Jesse Mar still in the mix. There we go. Still in the mix. All right. We're going to take another real quick break here. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back, and it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, out there and ask some questions and make some comments and concerns out there, and we pick a few each week uh, from the uh, listeners. And what do the folks want to know this week, Mossy? Uh, first up, uh, Peter Abbott, 68. What's Bob Bradley really like? I know you interviewed him this past week. Yes, uh, I've known Bob Bradley for many, many years. I mean, going back to when he was a collegiate coach down there at Princeton, I was right up the road at uh, Rutgers University as a player. What's he like? Uh, Bob Bradley is frustrating. Uh, He is maddening. He does not suffer fools. Um, He is very direct. uh, he, uh, but, but he is also, I think, underneath a teddy bear um, in that he is, he is a romantic. He is incredibly uh, appreciative of people with, uh, with, with passion and with heart and with spirit. I think he will bend over backwards to support those people. And anytime you know, I talk about Bob Bradley because of the history that we have. And for those that don't know, uh, I worked with Bob Bradley for a little for a little time uh, when we were at the Metro Stars many many years ago. And ultimately, it was my job to fire him, uh, and I felt that it was appropriate. And that's what we that's what we did. So I kind of have to full disclosure that type of stuff when I'm talking about Bob Bradley. You know, we have both certainly gone on to other things in our in our lives, and Bob's a coach, and he's the first person to tell you that coaches are hired to be fired, and whether you agree with it or not, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. And you know, we've had our had our moments at times, and there's things that I disagree with, and things that I agree with him. But ultimately, he's a good man. He's a really good man, and he's a good person. Um, and we are better for it as a soccer playing nation, and I believe as as a nation having. Bob Bradley's amongst us uh, because of the way that he thinks about not just the game of soccer, but the way that he thinks about uh, life. He's he is um, an acquired taste for some people, and I think he would he would say the same thing. But he's not real concerned about you know going out and impressing people because he believes in what he does. He is a true believer absolutely in everything that he does, in the way that he lives his life and certainly the way that he coaches soccer. And at times it's successful, at times at times it isn't, but he believes in what he does. And that's what you want. You want from people in those types of positions. And I want from uh, people like I said, whether I agree or disagree with what they are doing, I want them ultimately to believe in what they are doing. And I think when all is said and done about Bradley, Bradley he will go down as one of the great coaches and and 
I think that that is completely fair and right to have him go down as one of the great American coaches in history, and not even necessarily for what he has done and the results out there. I think that there is a generation, and now bordering on multiple generations now, that have been impacted by what Bob Bradley has done. And you can say this about other coaches too, but we're talking about Bob Bradley here. And we have a coaching tree now that is that is there. We have players that have played under him that didn't necessarily weren't necessarily great players, didn't go on to have long careers that I think will have benefited from the time with him. Um, we have a uh, multiple teams now in Major League Soccer that if you look at the time he spent with them, he helped to create their image and to establish an identity, and he's doing it right now and has done it to great effect with LAFC, and that in turn has made the league of Major League Soccer better and soccer better. So, you know, all of those different things. He's, in some ways, he's a complicated guy because there is the dichotomy there, um, but in other ways, he's a very a simple man. But ultimately, I think um, at his core and in his soul, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. And like I said, we agree and disagree at, uh, at different times. But I got a lot of time and I got a lot of respect uh, uh, respect for Bob Bradley. I know he doesn't necessarily look at you know, media and, and the, uh, the world that we live in uh, with, with any fondness necessarily. But he's also grown and he's also changed a whole lot over the years, as we all have. And... Uh, in my case, I, I would like to think it's been for the better. I would certainly look at Bob Bradley from from my perspective and look that he has evolved and he has changed and he has matured in who he is, but he's still at his core is Bob Bradley. And in that core is some some good stuff for him, for soccer, for his family, for his extended family, um, and like I said, for uh, for America. So that's my assessment of Bob Bradley. When he was the coach of the U.S. national team, I never had him pegged as a romantic when it came to style of play. But uh, ever since he took over LAFC, he's been very bullish about how win or lose, we're going to play a certain style, very expansive, attack-minded soccer. And he's criticized other teams in the league for playing negatively. Um, did I have that wrong? Was he always that way or has he evolved? Or I think that he was fundamentally changed by his path and his um you know, his foreign adventures that he had, both from a national team perspective and uh, the different clubs that he coached. And I think that his, you know, that his heart and his eyes uh, and his mind were opened up to maybe thinking about the game differently. And I, I think that that's to be expected, right? You go and you are exposed to different things. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I never, I think because he is very stoic about the way he goes about things and, doesn't reveal a whole lot. Um, by the way, he does have a great sense of humor and he does smile, but you have to really kind of um, dig down. But because he does that, he he at times is looked at as much more pragmatic um, and simple, I guess, or traditional than than he actually is. And maybe he was looking for that right place to create this identity and maybe he found it in LAFC. Uh, next is Nell Bradfield Croft who asks, how did you pass time when you were injured and unable to play or train? So for any athlete, being injured is obviously the worst moment other than actually being forced to retire, I guess, um, if, if, if you come to a point where you don't want to. But every athlete goes through it. Uh, you hope that it's a temporary type of thing, and you hope that it is the least amount of time out as possible. Um, but it plays on your mind. And that's where 
a lot of the rehabilitation is, it's, it's up here. It's between your ears. It's coming in and being a part of a team, but a part of a team or from a team, I should say, because you don't participate in the same way and with the same routine that everybody else goes through. And they kind of move on and you are out of sight, out of mind. And while they will say you're still part of the team and you know we still have you around, they have bigger fish to fry and they are dealing with stuff that for the players that are healthy that are rightfully the focus because they are what is going to you know, be that, uh, be that machine that is functioning on any given day. So it, so what did I do? I was very lucky that I wasn't, um, uh, consistently hurt and the injuries that I had were few and far between and none of them were serious, serious types of injuries. But still, when you're injured and you're out, all those different things start going through your mind. Am I going to get Wally pipped? Am I going to lose my, uh, lose my job? Um, is somebody else doing better than I am? Am I going to be the same when I come back? Is this going to derail my career? Am I still going to be able to do the same things? And you know, depending on the severity of the injury, uh, like I said, your, your wheels start spinning up there. So you have to find ways to stay engaged. Some players want to be around as much as the, of the team as they possibly can. Some players want to divorce themselves until they are ready because, you know, I'm sure a psychologist can figure this out. They, you know, they don't feel worthy or it just reminds them too much about what they are missing out on. Um, you know, so you know, what, what, what did I do to take my mind off it? There's nothing you can do to take your mind off it. And you can, you can read or you can try to pick up different things. Uh, it's really about setting goals for yourself. Intermediate, uh, you know, short-term, intermediate type of goals, long-terms, long-term goals, and trying to be patient with yourself. But the biggest challenge is the mentality, is, is how it plays on you mentally and the different ways that you think about it. And so your strength, your physical strength, which we talk so much about in sports, is one thing. But your strength of mentality it gets tested in ways that you haven't been when you are injured. And those that have the strongest one, those are the ones that come out of it um, quicker and easier and ultimately better. And other ones, um, they are constantly having those thoughts in, in their mind and it might take them longer or they don't come out with uh, on the other side in a place or they, or they don't come out as quickly on that other side. So. Anyway, those those are t- the types of things I think about when it is uh, when it's talking about injury. And the other side of it is that those that are injured sometimes are looked at as wounded parts of the uh, you know <laughs> the uh, uh, you know the, the the collection, right? And sometimes you don't want them around because they are injured. And it's, it's a strange way, the, the dynamics of, of, of a team. And they, you don't want somebody around that, in essence, is not contributing. And I know they contribute different ways, but the reality is they are not able to contribute, and therefore you don't want to be reminded, even from your perspective, about what that is. And it, and it can be a distraction. So the dynamic within a locker room and within a training room is really, really important. And it, there's no right way to do it. 
and different players react differently on both sides, the injured and the non-injured players. And that dynamic between them is always something to, um, to watch for. And a coach or a training staff has to be watching for it. It's not just about the rehab. It's not just about the ice. It's not just about the rehabilitation physically. It's also the recognition of those dynamics and how they play out within a locker room. Anything else, Mossy? Uh, last one. We'll, we'll bring it back full circle here. Okay. Uh, Bob Carley, and I'm sure this is uh, in response to the U.S. Uh, Olympic qualification failure. He he asks Alexi, broken system or just not good enough? Dot 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 again. Mm. Well, you know, I think we did this a couple of weeks ago, Mossy. What what I'll do with this because it sounds like this is ripe for a one for the road type of situation. So I am going to take a real quick break, and I'm going to come back and answer uh, his question about the system out there uh, in my one for the road. So don't go anywhere. All right, we're back, and it's the end of the show. And at the end of each show, I give you my one for the road. And as you just heard, we're going to take one of those Ask Alexi questions and use it for uh, the one for a road. You know, we came on on the pod today and immediately talked about the failure to qualify for the Olympics and the collective angst and inward-looking type of reaction that the American soccer community has uh, at this moment is to be expected. Now, it's not 2017 levels, but there is still this overall chatter and narrative out there that this is to be used as a referendum on what we are and what we aren't, and especially what we aren't or what we haven't done. And I get it. I I understand. We are, as a soccer nation and as a soccer culture, constantly assessing and constantly reacting to this uh, traditional type of insecurity and inferiority complex uh, that we have. And when a failure like this comes about, it either very publicly or maybe privately confirms what we may suspect about who we are as a soccer playing nation. Uh, as angry and as irritated and sad as I was last night to see the U.S. men's national team fail to qualify for the Olympics, I still remain incredibly optimistic and confident and bullish about the future of the men's program and about men's soccer out there because of some of the things that we've talked about, the amount of talent that we have, the uh, level where that talent is playing, and just the simple eye test of the quality that we we have uh, that is coming through this pipeline. Now, this talent that we are talking about is the fruits of our labor. These are seeds that were planted long ago that we are now reaping the benefits of. And into each life a little rain must fall. I get that. And we had a little rain yesterday, Sunday, with that failure. But in no way do I look at it as a, uh, a referendum that requires, once again, for us to 
tear it all down and tear the system down. There is, there is so much good. There is so much to be excited about and to be proud about where we are going and, uh, and what it is in, is exist, in existence right now. Does it mean that we uh, are home free and there's no more problems or challenges out there? Hell no. We still got plenty of stuff uh, to work on. And this shouldn't be swept under the carpet. This was a failure. And there should be examinations and postmortems, and there should be um, repercussions for these types of failures. But it shouldn't extend to the entire system out there. This team, I do, to, to, to your specific question, I still think that this team was good enough. And so therefore, it falls on the leadership, and we talked about that earlier in the pod, and obviously the players that didn't get it done. Could we have had a better team and a better group of players? Yeah, absolutely, we could have. But I don't think that this is a result of a fractured or broken system that needs to have a course correction. Okay, in in the greater scheme of things, and in the big picture of what we are uh, w- w- what we are talking about, I mean this. The irony of all of this is that at a time when I can't think of a moment in the past when we have been more excited um, and more confident about what we have, this failure occurred. I'm not saying it's an anomaly. I'm not saying, like I said, it, it is to be it is to be ignored, but I think it would be detrimental, and I think it would be regressive to look at that and you and point to that as a reason why we need to tear down the system, and everything is wrong. If you just look at the progress that we have made since that fateful night in 2017, I, I mean, I don't, I, I'm hard pressed to find, I, I would be hard pressed to find somebody that I trust to say, oh no. We are headed in the right, or the wrong direction, and this needs to be stopped in its tracks, and we need to tear down the system. I don't think that that is uh, is the case at all. And you know, I will I will end it here. Part of my job is to opine, and part of my job is at times to call it the way that I see it. But I I'm seeing it from a human perspective and from my personal perspective, which is a side. There are other sides. There are certainly others that if they were to be here talking about some of the things that we are talking about would say, yes, but this, or yes, but that. And they are all valid. And to the extent that we can hear them, that's great. I give you my opinion. People agree. People disagree. It comes from, I like to think, a place of, uh, of knowledge and given my history. But it also comes with inherent biases and baggage and all of the different things that we that we talk about. And uh, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just me being being human out there. There are some, as I say each and every time, there are some incredible people out there that are working very, very hard each and every day and making us better. And one failure, albeit a big failure, uh, whether it's in 2017 or whether it's this Sunday and not qualifying for the Olympics, does not mean that we are headed in the wrong direction, does not mean that there isn't wonderful stuff to be excited about that is coming down the line and that is in, is it, that is in existence today as we speak. So, and again, this isn't me just saying, ah, let's just forget about it. No, this is, this is, this is worthy of our attention, this failure. But 
it doesn't rise to the, uh, at least I don't think that it rises to the level of having to tear down the system that we have built, especially at a point when we are seeing some of those fruits of all of that work and that hard work and part of that system that has been implemented over the last five and yes, even 10 and 20 years out there. Masi, anything else uh, before we go back? So, I mean, one, one the, last the sky is not falling. Uh, one last question for you. The last time the U.S. failed to qualify to a major global tournament, the 2018 World Cup, you threw your support behind Mexico, very controversially so. Mm-hmm. Will you be doing the same at this summer's Olympus? Keep in mind, Brazil are in it as well. So you could, out of solidarity with your podcast hosts, you could perhaps throw your support behind Brazil. But uh, I suspect it'll be Mexico again for you, huh? No, I'm going to stand for uh, CONCACAF. So whether whoever goes further, Mexico or Honduras. Uh, or Los Honduras. Catrachos. Yes. I mean, look, I, I, you know, there's a, there's a scene at the end of Officer and a Gentleman, a movie, <laughs> where uh, the friend of one of the lead characters is sitting there clapping uh, for her friend as she rides off into the sunset with her Prince Charming. And it's this kind of facetious clap of, you know, way to go. Way to go, Mexico. Way to go, Mexico. Really, really happy for you. Um, no, but I'll, I'll still support uh, uh, Mexico and Honduras and, and CONCACAF. I want them to do well. I, I would have obviously wanted the U.S. to be part of that, but since they can't go, I'm okay uh, just to supporting them. It, it would be a dark day, and a, I think it would be problematic if there came a point where I supported Mexico over the U.S., at that point, cut me off. I'm done. That's it. That's it. Okay. But that point has not come. And I don't think it will ever come. So I'm okay supporting a Mexico or a Honduras in a tournament where, once again, the U.S. is not involved. But cheer up, folks. It's going to be okay. Uh, like I said, the sun came up uh, and there are good days ahead. So onward and upward. Mossy, anything before we go? That's it. All right, thank you so much for listening and uh, downloading and reviewing and subscribing and doing all the different things out there on all the different platforms uh, that we have. Uh, you know, we finished it up. Uh, we wrapped it up here. And I know we had a much longer opening segment, but, you know, that's that's the case when something big like this happens in the world of soccer. And a lot of our listeners and our viewers out there are talking about this, and we wanted to make sure that we gave it the time that it deserves because it is a uh, an interesting topic and one that deserves uh, deserves that time. We'll talk again next week uh, here on the State of the Union podcast. Hope everybody is staying safe and sane. Hope we are heading in the right direction off the soccer field and on the soccer field for that matter. We'll talk again next week. And until then, as always, size the day. 